Welcome to the podcast, Appetite for Distortion, episode number 334. My name is Brando. Welcome to the podcast, Jennifer Batten. How are you? Thanks for having me. Uh, you look awesome. I had to change my background briefly. If you're watching this on YouTube with you and some of your, your peak hair uh, hair times, but I'm glad that you haven't gotten rid of those days. So I, I not quite. I, I can't. I can't make it look like it did back then. That took two and a half hours and a professional. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you located right now? If you don't mind me asking, Portland, Oregon. Okay. So let me ask, because I'm in. I'm in Queens right now, Queens, New York. Uh, before the pandemic, I would do a lot of these podcasts out of the iHeart Studio in Tribeca. But you're a New Yorker, but that can mean so many different things. So I couldn't find out where did you grow up. Like, if I can, are we? I'm wondering if our parents were friends. If you can, <laughs> uh, upstate New York near Watkins Glen. Okay, so that's see, that's what I mean. I'm, I'm there's a difference between city New York and big. Um, right. I, I never got to New York City until I was with Michael Jackson. In 1987, I think. Eight. See, that, that's amazing to me. So I guess I, I, you've told you've gone through your story before, but I guess not here. How did you go from upstate New York? Again, I, that's where I go to visit. You know, that's where it's, it's getting away from it all. There's not a lot of people are real salt of the earth. Like, how did you, I guess, first get into guitar in upstate New York? Well, uh, it was born from jealousy. Uh, my sister had a guitar and I didn't, and that pissed me off. And between that and seeing the Beatles on TV, that that was my focus. It's like, it's like I was in this tiny town and everybody, all my friends were into the Beatles. So any time a new record came out, that's what, we would go to somebody's house and just listen to it and stare at the cover. You know, old school style back when we had three channels on TV. And well, would you know, believe it that Paul McCartney just announced some dates? So he's he's touring. Yeah, that's amazing. I saw it actually. I saw his tour in New York. Uh, gosh, maybe five years ago, maybe a little longer. And, and I just will never remember it. In fact, I swore it was my last arena show because there was a, a family of people singing every song behind my head, uh, right behind me, and they sucked. I mean, it's just so rude when you pay that much money to see somebody, to have somebody ruin the show for you. I'm going, man, never again. That's funny. So at least I saw him. I'm glad I saw him once. That's funny. After um, one of the more recent concerts that I've been to, Guns N' Roses, which may be quite obvious, and I was taping for the podcast, and I can't help but sing along. And watching back, I'm hearing myself, I'm horrendous. I'm, it's, I'm in, <laughs> I was embarrassed. I'm like, I, I don't think I can ever sing out loud again. Why didn't... Whoever I'm with, why don't they tell me that? Maybe just to whisper it or my belong to it. But uh, regardless, I would love to, if we can just, I guess, speed up to, because I had Michael Jackson's cassettes before I had Guns N' Roses on CDs. You know, I I had Dangerous on, I wish I had it with me, 
uh, to show you. It's somewhere in my mom's house, the Dangerous Cassette. And I, but I was too young to go to that tour. So I watched a lot of those VHS. You know, that's how I grew up watching you and just thinking like, wow. Because uh, how did that come about? Because you were, it was, and how old were you when that opportunity first came? Uh, I was 29 and uh, he was looking for guitar players. Um, David Williams is somebody that had played with him for years and played on his records. And he was on an extended tour with Madonna. And um, also that's how Ricky Lawson got the gig because uh, Jonathan Moffitt, who had been with the Jacksons, wasn't available. He was out with Madonna also. So they needed two guitar players and they auditioned a uh, hundred people and I was lucky enough to hear about the audition. Um, somebody called Musicians Institute, where I was teaching at the time, and said, we, we need two people. I was one of the lucky ones that got the call. So I, I took a couple days off and learned a bunch of his songs and went down as prepared as I could be. And there was no band. It was just, oh, uh, somebody was shooting video. And the only guidance I was given was to play something funky. So I did that, and then I kind of random improved um then i played the giant steps tapping solo that ended up on my first record um a john coltrane tune and then i i ended beat it solo because i had been playing that in a cover band and i thought he might find that useful so that bought me a house <laughs> forward. i i want to stay though in that 29 year old mind where where were you did you think that this was even like feasible you know, like where was your confidence level at that time? Obviously, now you're regarded as one of the greatest guitarists ever, but <laughs> it's I, I think you're underrated. You're you're underrated. You're not mentioned enough. That's just kind of. But everybody knows who you are and what you've been you've you've done. But I guess when you're 29 years old, how did you think of yourself? I I think I was I was probably a little bit cocky at okay. the time because I was really digging into fusion and jazz and music that was much, much harder than Michael Jackson's music. Um, and then I'm playing with these monsters like Greg Fillingaines and Ricky Lawson and, you know, the number one calls for all those kind of tours. Um, and that schooled me in groove. You know, I remember I, I worked my ass off getting all the parts down and getting them super accurate. And I remember... You know, there's certain moments in, that stand out in your life that just time stops. And I, I was even showing Greg Fillingaines the form to Billy Jean because he, he came in late. He was doing some other projects. And then, I don't know, a couple weeks in is when he started. So not like he wasn't a ridiculous quick learner. But um, I remember when, once we all got it down and we were ridiculous amount of hours every single day, um, he stopped. Said, okay, I think we got the show down. Now let's focus on groove. And you know, all of a sudden I'm thinking, and I always do this in bands when there's a problem. I go, is it me? <laughs> you know. <laughs> but I tell you what, playing with cats at that level for a year and a half, and when you're a musician, you don't really realize how you're improving day by day. But if you spend every single day with your instrument, hours a day, over time, you can't help but get better. And I remember playing with a band after the tour was over and you know i i had played with this band before the tour and all of a sudden i'm thinking how come you guys suck now <laughs> it's like my ears really got attuned to the groove and when things are flamming and things are not locked it, it's it's like fingernails on a chalkboard which i didn't hear before so at that point you had enough experience to feel good about yourself so i guess 
Because that, that lends itself, and it's just odd that we still ask these kind of questions all these years later about female guitarists. That's why I avoided that word, you know, guitarist ever. It doesn't have to be female, male, whatever. But at that time, were you thinking, you know, is the, how much can I do as a female guitarist? Because there, there were people that you can look up to at that time. It wasn't like it was new, but you still had a, you, so you're, you had a blaze a trail that people are still following today. So I guess, did you foresee how far your career could go as a female guitarist before, you know, Michael Jackson even? I, I honestly didn't think much about it. And when I went to Musicians Institute, which was the third class they ever had, and it was just GIT at the time, there was no bass and drums. I was shocked at day one to find I was the only female in the entire school. There was 59 guys and me. And that was kind of the first time in my life I go, oh, is this not a common career choice? Um, you know, and I played with a bunch of bands and bands wouldn't hire me if they had a problem with females. <laughs> and, and I do recall when I moved to L.A., my, my dad, I, I, I went to GIT, then I moved back to San Diego and several years later moved back to L.A. So my dad gave me a loan to get started. And I remember the very last audition I did before I knew, OK, I got to get a day job was this band. I put a lot of effort into learning their tunes and. You know, after the audition, the guy goes, yeah, that was really good, but we always have trouble with chicks. Huh. And I go, you bastard, huh. time waster. And so I go off to do a day job for the next, I don't know, year or so. And then I get the Michael Jackson gig. So it's just like me. The ultimate, <laughs> the ultimate middle finger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Yeah. It's, it, it's still so off balance, but and at that time, I thought, okay, the revolution has begun. I'm on the biggest tour on planet Earth. Wendy and Lisa had already played with Prince and and Billy Idol, female in the videos, playing keyboards. And I thought things would really change. And then 15 years go by and there's nothing. But once high-speed internet became a thing in everybody's home and people could see each other, I'd say often there's not a month that goes by that I don't get turned on to some seven-year-old girl in Indonesia that can kick my ass, you know, because <laughs> it's when you have access to seeing anybody on earth and you can slow it down and see where their fingers are and what string they're picking on. I would have given anything to have that when I was a teenager. I, I just had the local music store guys. In fact, I flunked the test to get into GIT because although I had been taking lessons since I was eight, I didn't know a diatonic scale. I didn't know a chord scale, harmonic minor. And um, I had to go study with this jazz player, Peter Sprague, in San Diego to get up to speed so I could get in the school. You would have went so uh, viral so often if they had the internet back then, just not just with your guitar playing. Cause that's a very cool thing that I've noticed. You go on Instagram, and especially female, just like shredding. So there's just, it's a common thing now. Yeah. But the way you also you, you dressed on stage was something, you know. I see people try to act dress dressed risque now, and I kind of laugh. I'm like, if if you can go on YouTube now and you see some of the stuff that you come out with on the Dangerous tour, I guess how did that that start? Because that wasn't very common to come out looking like a like a neon tree or just some like, giant anime character. Your hair obviously, uh, you know, hitting the taller than some sky, uh, skyscrapers. You know, how did it actually? Come about? You know, 
the, the wardrobe people had a talk with me to see what I was comfortable with. And I, I was not up for being risque. You know, I was, I was there to play guitar. I, I, some, some of the videos now look like soft porn. You know, I mean, so even the Super Bowl asses in the air. You go, know, really? Do we really need this to have the six-year-olds in the audience seeing this crap? And I, I think it really takes away from any potential respect you could get as a female player. And some girls are out there really working it, and I'm sure it gets them a ton ton of fans, but that's just not my thing. Um, I, I had different costumes every time, and the, the history tour was, uh, that was just vile. <laughs> it was just, <laughs> I, honestly, that that costume, uh, I had a, a leather mask that went across my nose and under my chin and blah, blah, blah. Um, had a wig attached to it, which was the, a benefit because instead of take two and a half hours to get my hair up there, it was just slam on a wig and you're okay. good to go. But that actually, the idea for that look actually came from a, a S&M book that somebody gave Michael. And the original painting had a ball gag in the mouth. And I'm looking at this going, uh, no. <laughs> Can somebody send a message to Michael that I, I don't want to be drooling on my guitar neck and <laughs> – Destroying my teeth. <laughs> he was totally fine with it. You know, he just wanted something that looked kind of hard. And, 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 and I realized, too, being part of those tours, it's, it's not just playing music. It's theater. Yes. Music is just the foundation. Then, then you put the lasers, the smoke, the pyro, the bombs, the videos, and whatever else you can think of on top of that. So once I get that in my mind, I go, okay, well, I'm a theater character now. <laughs> that's how I looked at it, and that's how I looked at your performance and it was a theater. You're coming out like it's almost circus-like, you know, in, in you know, with acrobats and everything. It's like you're, yeah, maybe I, I thought I was a little conservative, but I, I'm not into shaking. I mean, if you want to shake your ass, that's fine. I'm, I, but that's just, it's not what I, I gravitate towards. I gravitate towards musicianship. And then again, on top of that, there's so many things to look at at the same time. Where you know it's your costumes, it's your hair, it's your style, it's all these different things that uh, it would have been interesting if they had the internet had existed in the the early '90s. But from what we can tell from from videos, that thankfully we do have them. There were people with camcorders at that time uh, filming. Yeah. Do you go back and ever watch your old performances, or is that difficult for you to do? Uh, I I tend to look forward. Uh, the only time I see the old stuff is when people send me stuff. Like every Super Bowl, people send me videos of my performance like I haven't seen it before. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I I don't. I, I think the last time I saw a whole concert was before they released the Bad 25 um, video. And Sony invited everybody from the band down to the studio before they used it to have a look at the video and it it was so cool because i hadn't seen the guys for quite a while and man michael was on fire he was just ridiculous i mean because none of us had seen that in years and all of a sudden it's in our face and we were just reminded what a badass he was i mean even i'm working with a lot of impersonators right now and all of them would just die to do every move that michael did with the intensity that he did and I know – I'm not sure about the Dangerous Tour, but I'm, I know in the History Tour they had oxygen in his tent. And he would take breaks and huff oxygen just to, so he could get through a two-and-a-half-hour show with those moves. It was crazy. Before I get to um, the Michael performances, because 
before I, I fell in love with rock, I mean, Michael Jackson, we'll talk about that because I looked at him as like almost like my first rock star because of you and the songs that, you know, with Eddie Van Halen and, and, mm. and, and the like. But while we we're kind of touch, touching on the Super Bowl, you know, I, I watched it. I'm an American. We watched this. That's kind of like, it's like a holiday. I think the day after is officially a holiday now. My Giants are terrible. You know, I, I had no rooting interest in the game. Uh, at least I've seen them win uh, in my lifetime. And with the halftime, it wasn't my, th- it's not my thing. I'm not even like a, an Eminem guy. You know, some people just think like, really? You know, given my, maybe my age, because he was big and when I was in high school and it's just not my thing, but I respected the performances. I thought everybody did cool. I, I'm a, I love Snoop. Uh, Dre is cool, but I'm not, so I'm not going to dislike something because it's not my genre. That mm-hmm. being said, I guess, is that something that you want, whether it's this year and your opinion on this year, if you can, if you did watch, and do you go out of your way to watch the halftime knowing that you were a part of that, you know, one of the, one of, if not the best halftime show of all time, is that on your radar? That's, um, I, I don't watch the football. So I, I watched the super, the, um, the halftime after the fact, in fact, I watched it on my phone, which, you know, performers would be horrified, <laughs> you know, when I have a big screen, I actually watched it in bed on my phone. A lot of us do. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I thought it was a pretty amazing production, and God, they must have had at least a hundred cameras, and and I was thinking of what went into that building, that giant stage, which was a hell of a lot bigger than what we had for sure. I, I can't imagine what what it took to get it out on the field because with ours, our, our stage was maybe in five parts, and everything was on wheels, and they would rehearse it by. My memory is doing like a, a race gun, like pop, and everybody runs with their pieces of the stage, not the band, but whoever they had do that. Then you got to connect the pieces of the stage during a Lay's potato chip commercial <laughs> and have it ready to go because everything's live. You know, they can't screw up at all. So what they had, I imagine they, they had to pull that in on a semi, I would think. It was just like bringing in a small city. So that production was phenomenal, really. And there, there was, there was some good music in it. Yeah, it was. I, I, I there were Super Bowls, and I'm not going to go that route of like, what Super Bowl did you dislike? The, you know, that's that's like a thing every year. That's like with the commercials. But when you think back to yours again, like with with Prince, yeah. Michael Jackson, those are like the the examples of like this is what these these are the top. Like, is there a yeah. moment? And I, I'm sure you've been asked this, but is there a moment that sticks out, or maybe? something that surprised you during that experience because i think it would be overwhelming but you yeah are, everything, right? everything surprised me we we were so compartmentalized i didn't know what was going to happen outside of my own performance huh. <laughs> you know the band performed we, we rehearsed our the medleys and whatever but i didn't know that there was going to be um the beginning of the show would have an impersonator popping out of the scoreboard and then another one on the other side of the field popping out in smoke. And so if you, if you see the very beginning of it where you see Michael and you see the scoreboard, you see me going like this, like, what the fuck? Is <laughs> <laughs> and then at the end with the heal, heal the world or um, we are the world, whatever they did, uh, the kids with the cards that came out to form pictures. I had no idea that was going to happen. So it was it was really fun. It was one of the most fun things because I knew it was only going to happen once. And I knew it was aired to a lot of people, though I didn't know it was 
you know, 80 nations would be checking in live because that was before you could record TV. Obviously, the Super Bowl is a different animal, but on a night-to-night basis with Michael, how much of it was guesswork? You know, did you always go into it? Like, was there anything that you didn't expect or did you just know this is the set list? This is where I need to stand. Were oh, there surprises? It had, it had to be so worked out because of pyro cues, which are very dangerous. Yeah. You can't have people just wandering into the pyro thing like Metallica. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, uh, there were specific costume changes that had to happen. So, yeah, it was the same set list every single night. Um I was one of the lucky ones, depending on what tour it was, I I got to improvise a bit. But other than that, it was about parts and groove and timing and just we rehearsed more than I've ever rehearsed with any band in my life before or since. Um, So, you know, I'd I'd never played for more than generally a few hundred people and at the most a festival, maybe 1,500. And all of a sudden, I'm going to be playing with 50,000, four or 50,000 people up to 120,000 in Liverpool, open field. And so opening night, it was in Tokyo. And I remember being, you know, anxious because I didn't know how I would feel. I I knew I put in the time for rehearsal and I, I felt confident about the tunes. But I think any performer has experienced you know, everything's going great in rehearsal and all of a sudden you're on the show and things aren't sounding the same or, you know, when the lights are in your eyes or something can be distracting to make you screw up. But I was really delighted with the first show that once once they counted it off, it was just like being at rehearsal because we had done so many repetitions of all the songs in the same order for two months straight. Did Michael have advice for you? Like, how closely did you guys work together in addition to, you know, you had to work with the band and, of course, the, the staging and you mentioned the pyro, of course. We all know the Metallica incident that happened. But yeah. I get, because obviously you, you followed him. You know, it's it's not, it wasn't just a one tour. Was there something maybe you, you bonded over or was it just all music? Uh, it was all music, really. I mean, it... During rehearsals for the bad tours, the most time we had to spend with him. Once we were on the road, there was 100 people in the entourage. We took up three different hotels, and there wasn't a lot of hang time. We would all get to, all the performers would get together with him before the show and just kind of have a group prayer and let's do this kind of thing. Um, mostly information would come through Greg Fillinganes. So he was the musical director. And Michael, I think he filmed every rehearsal and watched them at night, which that's a lot. You know, when I finish a rehearsal, I don't want to I don't want to hear music. I don't want to play music. I'm just burnt. So he, he was as professional as they come. So if he saw something in the recording that he wanted changed, um, he would call Greg and then Greg uh, would work us the next day before Michael showed up to to change what he wanted changed. So there wasn't a lot. There was uh, there were a few things in the moment where I was really happy to be playing with him. I was having a blast and I was smiling all the time. So I'd be smiling while I'm playing the beat it solo. And he didn't like that. He wanted me to snarl because it's a nasty song about fighting. So, you know, just a few small things like that that he that he asked for. OK, that's it. I, I, I always just wonder if it's something like. Nobody knows like a like a sense of humor or you bonded over, I don't know, if he, the, a movie or something like that. You know, something that we all could identify with 
in addition to just the major stuff like uh, music. So that's why, you know, I, I kind of always ask if there's something that, you know, uh, you bond over. But um, you mentioned how everything is regimented, but I was listening to an interview you did a couple years ago with uh, Natternet. They do a lot of stuff with about Buckethead. And they were talking to you a little bit about Slash when he came out on that, that dangerous yeah. tour. And for me, I, I didn't even know how to process that as a young kid because I'm growing up. I love Michael Jackson. Yeah, he's the king of pop. But I was like, he's such a rock and roll guy. And, you know, he's all over. And then, like, here's this Guns N' Roses music where I was still maybe too young to get into at that time. Yeah. I think it was uh, not as kid-friendly at that, that time in my life. But just to have Slash and Michael Jackson, those two worlds collide. Uh, but in the interview, you said you weren't expecting that. You didn't know Slash was going to show up and do these shows? No. Like I said, we're, we're compartmentalized. We know our thing. And I, I showed up to a gig in, somewhere in Spain. And I walked past the area where our guitars were. And there was a whole bunch of Les Pauls. And neither of us played Les Pauls. I go, what the hell's going on? So somebody told me that Slash would be sitting in that night. And uh, Michael brought Slash and I into his tent to discuss basically the stage moves. We did black and white together. And it was hilarious because, you know, it's one thing to comprehend the moves by here's what we're going to do. But we didn't go over it physically. So we're on the stage and there was one point where both of us, Slash and I, were supposed to run to... The stage left front where the fans are – you see the fans blowing his hair behind there. <laughs> yeah, if you're watching. My, my hair was not going to move. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he eventually did make it over there, but he he was like planted in the middle of the stage. So I grabbed his arm to kind of remind him that we need to move now for this for the bridge or something. And it was like trying to pull a tree. That guy was planted you know, it was so such a strange experience, but I, I think eventually he migrated over there. And I will tell you, I had banged so hard during that song, my neck hurt for a week. Because normally I would only go up for, I don't know, 8, 16 bars for certain things, and I'm back in my position. The The front stage was mainly for Michael and the dancers, and the, there was almost a whole separate stage for the musicians. What did you know of Guns N' Roses at that time? Because... The Dangerous Tour was what, 91, 92? And that's when yeah. Use Your Illusion came out. And they're the biggest band in the world. But yeah, Michael, was, Michael Jackson's the biggest artist in the world. So, I mean, yeah. what did you know? Or are you just compartmentalizing and you're just in your own touring world? Like, you're, are you aware of what Guns N' Roses is doing at that time? Sure. Very aware. Yeah. MTV was huge at the time. So I, I, I knew... I think I might have even still listened to the radio back then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was I was well aware. I was a fan of the uh, the first record, Paradise City and uh, Jungle. I, I thought they were great. Okay, I guess then how did you um, you talk about Appetite for Destruction? You know, that's obviously where I get the name of this podcast, Appetite for Distortion. If, yeah, the state the obvious. Um, so you're you're. You know, you're establishing your name in the 80s and then, you know, in the 90s, 90s with Michael Jackson. And there's still, still this term, hair metal, and you have the hair to win them all. <laughs> you know, so I guess what's your, what were your thoughts on that scene? And then when Guns N' Roses came in with Appetite for Destruction, like, did you 
see that as different? I guess, how did you view that scene? And I guess GNR in general when they, they broke in 1987. Yeah, well, I, I felt like I was part of that scene. You know, I up until I got the Jackson gig, I was in five different bands and one of them was doing, um, we didn't do Guns covers, but we did Dokken covers and stuff of that genre. So I, I was just into playing. You know, I, I had one band that was kind of like the Chili Peppers with the punk funk because nobody could sing. Wrapped <laughs> 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 and uh, I, I just wanted to play. I was open to anything at that point. Okay, cool. So after that, the thing with Slash, I guess what's what's going through your mind though there where I guess I'm going, I have to only think I have to compare it to myself. If I, I, were you threatened by that? Or did you just say like, oh, here's a moment like where Slash is going to play with us? Like, did, what did you talk about with Michael? Maybe like, and Slash, like after the fact, because it wasn't, it was, it was a few shows. It wasn't just one. No, it was just one. Oh, it was just yeah. one. Okay. Yeah. Um, we, we had Steve Stevens come out on the bad tour for three nights in New York, but Slash was just the one and, and gone. And Michael and I never talked about it after the fact. Okay. You know what? Then I'm, I'm thinking of, because I've become friendly with uh, a former GNR manager, Doug Goldstein, who was their manager at that time. And he tells a story, and you may not know anything about it, uh, that he believes when Slash left to go play with Michael, they were on tour with Use Your Illusion, and Slash is like, bye, I'm going to go play with Michael Jackson for three days. That's where the, the, the multiple dates comes into mind. But it was, yeah, right, one show. And what, but what he believes, he's like, he was, that Axel was upset about that because of, we're not going to go down the route of Michael's allegations, but I mean, that's what Axel believed. And Slash didn't care. He's like, I'm, I'm going to go play with Michael. And then Doug has told the story. As my fiance just texts me, she's flying home from. Uh, she went to go to Mexico to see Dave Matthews, so that's what. I, wow, that's dedication. Yeah, it is. Sorry, I very professional as I left my phone not on vibrate, which you always do. <laughs> um, but he, he, Doug offered. The story goes like I, I, I offered like, yeah, if you're gonna go do this, let me at least negotiate your deal. Like, are you gonna get anything close to the million dollars that Eddie Van Halen got? He's like, no, I already negotiated my deal. Michael sent a big screen TV to my house. And Doug's like, that's it? You just got a TV out of it? Yep. So I don't know. Like, have you heard that story? Do you know anything about, you know? Well, I'll, I'll back up to the Eddie thing. He didn't get any money for Don't Beat It. He did it as a favor. Okay. Yeah, I know he, he, he sat in with them, and I, I doubt he got paid for that either. But, I mean, you got to consider the publicity is worth – you can't pay enough money to get publicity like that. Slash sits in with Michael Jackson. It's going to be in every newspaper in Europe and around the world. That's true. So, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very true. Um, another mysterious, um, I don't know, I was trying to think of a, a better segue, but I'll just ask about Buckethead instead. Because uh, he lists you as one of your, he has listed you as one of like his influences. And then as I'm like researching, going back and, and watching your videos and with you in the costumes, like if you could talk about like, was he inspired by the playings and the costumes? And I, and did you ever remember what he sent you in that love letter that apparently he sent you as a young bucket? A <laughs> young bucket. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I run into him again so we can talk about this, but uh, it was the sweetest letter ever. I hope I still have it. I've got like 20 scrapbooks in my closet. But 
he listed the reasons that we would make a good couple. <laughs> right, that's um, what it was. I had a, a Westie breed dog and his mother bred Westies. That was one of them. And obviously we would both play guitar and, you know, there's five or six things that would make sense that we would be a couple, but that did not happen. <laughs> I think he was 16 at the time. And he had sent me a, he did kind of a spoof on a, a guitar instruction video and he sent me that with the bucket on his head and <laughs> you know who knew he would uh, go on to record and get millions of fans what do you think about i guess buckethead in general because i didn't know about him until he joined guns and roses and yeah. i am a, a forever fan i was i thankfully got to see him at least play once live because i know he doesn't know his tour he played bb king's blues club in new york city before it closed down and I'm just like I'm in awe of his playing and you know the gimmick and the passing out the toys and the nunchucks. So I guess what did you like? Is there a way to describe Buckethead for those who like who don't? I mean, people who listen to this podcast know who he is, but yeah, I, um, I'll just say he's a super creative guy. You know, he, he's done some really off the wall things, and it, it just makes it really interesting. It's not the the standard. Okay, here's another Steve Vai guy. You know, <laughs> he's got his own bag happening. Did you ever listen to his work with, with GNR and Chinese Democracy out of curiosity? Yeah, I'm sure I listened to that, but I I got too many memories in the gray matter to even recall <laughs> that right now. Is that going to be the title of your next book? Too, too many memories in the gray matter? Yeah, I actually started writing a book after Michael passed. Because there, there were so many books coming out that were just salacious and none of these people even knew Michael. So I started writing a book of this is what it was like to actually tour with him. And because there was nothing salacious in it, everybody passed on it. So there you go. Ooh, that that hurts my – I think that hurts a lot of uh, – as a Michael Jackson fan and also as the way I conduct myself because I told you before the interview I'm not a – a clickbait guy and maybe I would be more popular if I was, but is there, I, I want to hear like what, what's out there. I mean, aside from the obvious and whatever, like, what do you feel about, like, what do you feel comfortable sharing that we don't know about Michael Jackson that we should know about, about him? Is there anything? Um, just that he was extremely respectful. A lot of times you hear stories about huge acts that are just a-holes to their band. You know, the, you guys sleep on the bus and I get the five-star hotel. Um, or there's, there's certain people that are notorious for yelling at people on stage. Or even Prince. It, when somebody made a mistake, he'd pull the James Brown thing like he would fine you. You know, you made a mistake on this song, so you owe me $500 kind of thing. And Michael wasn't like that at all. That was not his upbringing. He was always very respectful to everyone and appreciated us. So it, it was really wonderful. Um, you know, I, I got all these memories trying to collide at once. And you're asking me about a, a while back about something that happened on the tour. And <laughs> I remember we were at, I think it might have been, uh, oh, it was the Dangerous Tour rehearsals. And they were working on something new. Uh, th they called it the cherry picker, where there was this big mechanical arm that would go out over the audience, and he'd be on top of them with this cape blowing in the wind. And we were rehearsing it, and the arm, he's out there with the arm, and the arm all of a sudden does this, like it's 
that throw him off. And so he's hanging on to the, the bars and all the roadies are on their, their radios like, oh, holy shit, the boss is in trouble. We'll bring the arm back in. And eventually he comes back on the stage and he gets on the mic and he goes, you know, I don't mean to pull rank, but this needs to be fixed. <laughs> you know, where somebody that hadn't been in show business since they were five years old might have just said, you're fired. Ah, this is wrong. Blah. But he was I never saw him lose his shit in 10 years. He, he just wanted to put on a good show and uh, he wanted people to have a good time. And it'll always be one of my, I guess, just just because of age, regrets is us not seeing him live. And as I mentioned, as as far as I, back as I can remember, I've been listening to Michael Jackson's music. And specifically, there was an Alvin and the Chipmunks VHS I used to watch where they put Alvin in like the, the Beat It video. And it's, I mean, I go back. Oh, really? <laughs> I still remember it. Then, of course, again, I got Dangerous on uh, on cassette. I have that somewhere. And watch VHSs of the, of the tour, uh, of his tour and his performances, and you know, still to this day, uh, I'm, I'm a fan. But I always was curious because he's obviously the king of pop. But I keep talking about where you know rock and roll. Was there ever a moment that you thought that yeah he did the band thing with the Jackson Five, and he was you know he was up there with you and he's just feeling the solos whether it's Slash or whoever. He, guitars he really gets into it did you ever think that he wanted to form a rock band maybe and and do something different than just have michael jackson have these songs that have rock elements did you ever thought that maybe hey if i got jennifer if i got this we can do something different and have a rock band or a rock album any any vibes like that i think he was doing exactly what he wanted to do okay yeah i mean he had the freedom to do whatever he wanted and so and it was such a brilliant move to bring Van Halen into the mix. I mean, it really worked to expand both of their audiences. Huge. You know, the biggest selling record to date at that point. In fact, when, when uh, Thriller sold 20 million records, I heard the entire Sony offices around the world took two weeks off and went to Hawaii. That's that's how much money was coming in. And then he went on to sell twice that amount, more than twice that amount. So, um, you know, he, he wanted music that would reach people. And I, I think the pop format is what's going to reach a lot further than, a you know, a narrow, narrower format of metal or rock. I, I always thought about it like it's not even just a – it shouldn't be a label. Yeah, like pop hits and it, we know what translates to radio. But I'm like he just made great music with great yeah. guitars. And uh, But before I, I guess I would be remiss before I let you go if I didn't ask about Eddie Van Halen. Uh, yeah. How did you – I mean we all took his passing. Me as just a fan. I never got to meet him. But I mean you – when did you get a ch- chance to meet him? I, I read something about like – he did something with Michael Jackson and he needed to be reminded about how to play the beat it solo. Was there like, was that the only moment? Did you have any other moments with, uh, with Eddie did you ever get any feedback about, you know, your live performances of, you know, his solo? I, I met him briefly at a NAMM show and it, and it was kind of like, I think he felt like an animal in the zoo because people were just staring at him um, that, so that was kind of uncomfortable, but we were, we ended up rehearsing next door 
to each other in North Hollywood. Um, he was he must have been checking out some gear because it was just him and his roadie, maybe one more person in his room. And then I had a gig that had been booked before I got the Jackson tour. So we were, were rehearsing to do that during a, a break in the bad tour. And they asked me to come next door and play the beat it solo, you know, and I, I went I went in and he put his 5150 Strat on me. And anytime I've put a guy's guitar on me, it generally hangs uncomfortably low because I, I tend to have my guitars up kind of high. And plus his, his Floyd Rose tremolo bar, he, he likes that loose. So it's always just going to swing. And mine, I know exactly where it is. I can push it and it's going to stay in that position. So that it was a little bit of a struggle trying to find that. But so I played it for him and then he... Yeah, he picked up the guitar and started learning it and just going, how's this go? So <laughs> I gave him a, a couple tips, but it was the most interesting thing about that was because he never played that with with Van Halen. You know, he he improvised the stuff, played it, recorded it, and then never thought of it again. So, you know, I wouldn't expect him to to know most of it. But even though we were playing the same notes, he was playing a couple things in a very different way. And I was so remorse. I, I took my video camera to that building the next day, hoping he'd still be there, and he wasn't. And it was long before smartphones, so you know, there's no evidence of it, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But And then he came next door um, maybe an hour later when my band was playing and watched us play and gave me the best compliment I've ever gotten, ever, which is nothing I could share with my mother for sure, but he goes, you're a motherfucker. <laughs> you know, man, I'll take that. <laughs> was it was really, really sweet. Yeah, I mean, is there with you? I mean, I never, I don't get this impression from you because from, from talking to you this uh, for forty minutes or so thus far, that was there any intimidation to me? Because like you mentioned, everybody's staring at Eddie. Or, or did you see a colleague? Or like, how did you see Eddie Van Halen at that time? Or did you see a, a peer? Or were you intimidated at all that you're playing his oh. solo? Um, I'm sure I was really anxious, you know, at first when I showed up and they go, Van Halen, next door, he wants you to prove you can play the beat it solo. I said, no. (laughs) (laughs) And actually to get me over there, they said, well, you just say hi to him. And I go, well, hell yeah. Um, and once I was there, it's just kind of in the moment going with the flow. Um, but it, 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 he's not one of those guys that was sitting there going, okay, show me what you know. (laughs) Sure. yeah, no, it really depends on people's energy. You can feel their energy, and he was just wide open and appreciative. So it was cool. Well, I mean, I appreciate you sharing that with me and, and a, a few stories today. I hope you do get that Michael Jackson book out because that's at a certain level, you know, not – that's kind of what I do here. I get these stories from people who really know Axel Rose, like he, maybe that's the best example of, of all these stories out there about him. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm talking to people who literally worked with him and, and toured with him and spend time with him. And, you know, so it's, I, I try to get that out. I don't, you know, I, I try not to buy into some of that, uh, that stuff that's out there and just enjoy the music if I'm able to, which thankfully I've been able to, uh, with you because of you. So with that being said, what do you have going on in the future? What can we look uh, for now from uh, Jennifer Batten? Like anything that's uh, cooking? What can you tell us? 
You know, I'm in kind of an odd space right now. I've I've been touring the planet for like 35 years and I'm super burnt out. I, I'm sick of getting on planes, sick of broken guitars and misconnections and canceled flights. And so I started a cover band in Portland a couple of years ago, and I'm really working that. I've got also a solo multimedia show where I, I do originals and kind of original covers in sync with films that I make. And I just launched last summer a duo version of that. So I have a singer with that as well. So I just kind of, I want to stay home and or it's not working because I'm off to Europe for months. I'm, in fact, I'm supposed to play the Kremlin palace and now Putin has ruined that. So I don't know what's going to happen with that, but I was supposed to be in, in Paris for a couple of days. I, I, all of a sudden I've got a, a lot of Michael Jackson tribute shows that are asking me to play. So I got something in Spain coming up, Mexico, Argentina. There's a Brazilian one that's really good. There is coming to America. Uh, I got a few dates this summer. And I've been playing with one in the UK for four or five years. I'm going back there for a couple of weeks. Um, just a, a little bit of everything. You know, uh, the whole summer is going to be my band playing in Portland, which I'm thrilled about. And are you still working on, it's supposed to be an, an all-girls fantasy camp, all-women fantasy camp? Is that still happening? Uh, you know, that was supposed to happen in January, and Nancy uh, Nancy Wilson and um, Melissa Etheridge decided they they didn't want to do it because it was a COVID surge, so mm-hmm. that's canceled, and it's moved to Mother's Day, uh, but I'm going to be in Europe, so that's not going to happen. Oh, okay. All yeah. right. Well, that does seem cool because uh, I've been fortunate enough to have had Nancy Wilson on the show and then Kathy Valentine from the Go-Go's. I think that was uh, she was going to be on it. So hopefully in the in the future. Well, well yeah, you know, they, they said it was their biggest selling camp ever. So they're definitely going to repeat that, I'm sure, because I, I think a lot of women uh, just wouldn't feel comfortable being in a mixed camp with a bunch of macho shredder guys. <laughs> so I, I think it's probably a probably feels a lot safer environment to a lot of people that might sign up. And it's not cheap, man. It's just like five grand to get in there. Wow. Well, yeah. um, I would ask you what would, keeps you motivated, but I feel like that would be a whole other hour because you, you seem not to, yeah, you say you're tired. But it doesn't seem to be like you still got a full plate. Is there one specific oh, thing? No, I'm just tired of traveling. Yeah. And jet lag and all that. I I still get excited with music and every new tune I learn, as long as I like the tune. And for most situations, I'm in control now, so I do like the tunes. Um, I like exploring, seeing what I can do. Uh, I, in my solo show, I do uh, – I'm starting to add a lot more cover songs, like uh, Peter Gabriel's In Your Eyes. And I'm playing it with harmonics, and I like to explore how I can take a vocal song and – kind of bring it alive with the guitar so and and i'm doing a lot of sessions too in fact i got two recordings i have to do tonight so um i I like variety fortunately wow (laughs) because you kind of have to as a freelance musician you you just have to do whatever comes in an email wow i mean it's really inspiring i mean yeah i'm not a I wish I had the talent to be a musician or a guitar player that's why i chose the radio path but it's really inspiring to see all you've been able to do and accomplish and still going forward and being creative with what you're doing. So things aren't getting stale. And I love the fact that you're paying tribute and doing all these Michael Jackson things uh, around the world, keeping his music alive for, you know, his millions of fans. So uh, 
Jennifer, thank you so much for your time. It's just, it's appreciated, and I hope we get to do this again. All right, sounds good. Thanks for having me. Cheers. You got it. So that does it for this episode of Appetite for Distortion. When will you see the next one? Well, the words of Axel Rose concerning Chinese democracy. You'll see it, I don't know, as soon as the word. Security, I'm going home.